Morning, Woodside. So glad you joined us. Uh, I'm glad to be back. I think last weekend was a success. My, I think my sister's married. I don't think I messed it up too badly. Um, so I think I signed all the right lines and everything's good. So that's two for two. Haven't messed them up. I didn't mess up Dave and Jen's. Um, I don't think, right? Not too bad? It was, it was good? All right, good. All right, so yeah, getting the hang of it. This, this um, but we missed you guys. Uh, we don't like being away. Um, so I'm excited to be back with you. And I'm excited to be back with... With Mark. Um, so this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 21, still on page 843 of your Pew Bibles. Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. And starting at next week, basically, we will be at the, the halfway point of the book of Mark. Right? The, the first, everything we've looked at so far, all have all kind of been building towards Mark 8, verses 27 through 30, which is what we're going to look at next week. This is kind of like the dividing line of the book that we're getting to next week. So in this first half, as we've we've kind of made the case, Mark has been making his case that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Son of God. But if we just stopped in the middle of chapter 8, like we just stopped next week, we we wouldn't really know the purpose of Jesus' coming. We wouldn't know why he came. We wouldn't know anything about the cross or his whole reason for for doing what he has done. So next week, we're going to see... Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the the Christ. Remember, in the very first verse of the book, that's what Mark tells us. He says, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And then he spends the next eight chapters, which is what we've been doing, kind of making that case, defending his claim, showing us that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. But in our text still this morning, we're not there yet, in our text this morning, the disciples still don't get it. But... What Mark has been trying to do for us is to give us all of these signs and evidences and proofs that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Messiah, God himself, come in the flesh to take the place of sinners. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Our passage this morning is about signs, right? We've seen all of the amazing things that Jesus did, but... We have also tried to emphasize over and over again that Jesus wasn't just some magician, right? He wasn't like a street performer. He wasn't David Blaine or someone out there kind of trying to just, wow, look at this guy. This is really cool. No, he he wasn't just trying to impress people. The Bible frequently refers to Jesus' miracles as signs, right? What is a sign, right? Well, a sign is something that points to something else, right? A sign is something that carries a message, that conveys some sort of information, But if you think about it, the sign is never the point, right? It's what the sign points to that matters. So when I'm walking around the city at night and I'm starving, right? When I I get really excited when I see a 99 cent pizza sign, right? That's just, yes, 99 cent pizza. I can afford this. That's good, right? But what is it? I'm not excited about the sign, right? I don't get to stand there at the sign and be like, yes, that's it. No, I'm excited about what the sign represents. Good, cheap, hot pizza for a dollar, right? So the sign's not the point. The pizza that the sign points to is. Think about uh, ladies. We've got four women in our church that are going to have babies in the next three months. That's extremely exciting. But when contractions start, right, you start getting a little bit excited at first, not because of the contractions. I I hear ladies, right, that they're miserable, what I'm told. Um, I don't know, but I hear they're awful. But the contractions are a sign of what's to come, right? They're a sign pointing to the new life that is imminently going to be in the world. So you get excited about it in spite of the pain, right? The signs aren't the point. 
Right? It's what the signs point to that matters. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The miracles that Jesus gives us as signs. Signs that carry information and convey a message about him. In Acts 2.22, Peter in his first sermon, he talks about Jesus as a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Right? The signs attest to Jesus. They confirm who he is. They reveal something to us about him that we should pay attention to. So this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to look at three things for our three kind of little sub-passages. We're going to look at the sign first, then we're going to look at the demand for another sign of the Pharisees, and then we're going to see the disciples' failure to understand the sign. Right? That's, that's what we're looking at. And so we're going to do it in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, page 843. Uh, follow along as I read. This is God's Word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. Um, we thank you that it's all about him, um, that he's the point that all of these signs um, point to. So I pray right now that we would see him, we would focus on him, um, you, would, you would work in our hearts, um, that you would um, apply these truths um, to our heart, and that you would be glorified. Um, take away any distractions. Um, focus us in these next few minutes on you and on your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the first 10 verses in our passage this morning, we, they're another miraculous feeding, right? If you've been paying attention, we just saw the feeding of the 5,000 um, two chapters ago in chapter 6. So now we have the feeding of the 4,000. And honestly, the miracles are basically the same, but they are in two different places, and they are with two different groups of people. But remember back two weeks ago to what we talked about last time I was here. Jesus, he's in the middle of his kind of little tour through Gentile areas. 
We saw him heal two Gentile people last time, and now here he is, still in Gentile lands, feeding a Gentile crowd in the same way that he had recently fed a Jewish crowd. So remember what he's trying to do. He's trying to teach us. He's trying to make it clear that he has come not just for the Jews, as they thought, but he has come for Gentiles as well. Right? He's not just the Savior of one people, but he is the Savior of all kinds of people. So there in verse 2, we see his, his compassion again for the people. But the significance is that it's compassion for Gentile people, right? And the Pharisees would, would not have been cool with that. So they've all been there for three days. Uh, they just want to be with Jesus. Uh, they just want to hear Jesus teach. Maybe they'll be healed. Three days they lined up. They, they wait around for Jesus. And I, I really like that, right? They, they were so interested in Jesus that they were willing to devote Three days to him. Now, we can barely get through a 40-minute sermon about Jesus without thinking that it's, that it's too long. But they're here for three days. Right? Today, the only thing that people line up for for multiple days is like the release of the next iPhone. Or you get like a bunch of nerdy people camping out before a really big movie um, coming out. Right? That's, in a couple years, they're redoing, uh, they're making new Star Wars movies. So if you go on the first night and just stand outside the theater, you'll see all kinds of crazy people dressed up in crazy costumes, sleeping on the sidewalk to see this movie. I, I, I've never understood it. Like, just go the second day. <laughs> it's still the same movie the second day. But they camp out because they care so much about this movie. Right? Or five days from now is Black Friday. I don't know what it's like up here, but in the South, you go Thanksgiving morning and you camp out on the side of the street and you celebrate Thanksgiving on the sidewalk so you can save $50 on a TV. Like, I, again, I've, I've never understood it but the point is that the things that you really, really care about, right, people were willing to sacrifice time and, and to camp out and to, to spend lots of time um, for that. And that's what these crowds are doing for Jesus. And he, he has compassion on them, right? You know, Best Buy doesn't come out and feed the people like, oh, they might be hungry. No, Jesus is the people are hungry. I, I have compassion on them. I'm going to feed them. And then in verse 4, the disciples, just true to form, once again, they, they astound us with their denseness. Verse 4 just kind of blows our minds. How can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? Disciples, right? What are you doing? Are you kidding me? Are you paying attention at all? Right? Two chapters ago, very recently, Jesus just fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. Right? Are these guys really this slow? Have they already Forgotten? How could you forget something like God, like Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 people? And many critics, many non-Christians have taken this fact to try and kind of argue that Mark just made up this second story, right? He just kind of made a little doublet for literary purpose. It didn't actually happen. There's no way they would wonder and forget so quickly just after watching him feed another crowd. But if you think about it, that's exactly the point of this passage, right? And this is something that every one of us regularly does as well. Emma does this, right? We feed her breakfast and lunch every day. And then by dinner time, she starts to get a little concerned, right? She's like, eat, eat? Like, are, we, are you going to feed me here? Like, what, what's happening? Of course we are, right? We have fed her three times a day for 684 days, right? And we get to the 685th day, and all of a sudden she's like, uh about this one like are they are they going to come through are they going to feed me this time of course we are right but this is just kind of a, a humorous illustration of a sinful tendency that we all have god comes through time and time again in your life but then something happens and you're like whoa wait a second i'm not sure about 
this one, right? He, no, he, there's no way he can handle it this time. Can the creator God of the universe actually handle this situation? Where is he? Does he care? Well, what's happening, right? We're, we're so quick to forget that he is good and that he is faithful and that he is only, that he's the only one that we can actually rely upon. We are so quick to forget the cross in Romans 8, 32, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All right, and this is why worry and anxiety are such serious things in the Bible. Because it boils down to unbelief. Right? It, is, it is distrust in God, who is the only trustworthy one. So what we're doing when we worry, we are saying to God that we don't trust him to take care of this situation. We tell him that there's no way he can handle this one. And we, we forget his word. We forget the countless times that he has proven himself, particularly at the cross. So, don't give the disciples too much grief here, right? We all do the exact same thing. We'd see him do something the one day, and then the very next day we're like, oh man, where's God? Oh, what's, what's going to happen, right? And so that's what the disciples are doing right here. But Jesus is patient with them. He, he shows them again. He, he gives them another sign. Right? He sits the people down like last time. He gives thanks. He breaks the bread and he starts to hand it out. And he keeps handing it out. And he keeps handing it out. And he keeps handing it out. And so everyone is um, filled and satisfied. He, he sends the people away. He climbs into the boat. And then he heads to the other side of the lake. So it's a different account of a different miracle, but the point and the emphasis of the miracle, the thing that we can draw from it, it's you know basically the same thing that we looked at last time. So we want to focus here on the response of the Pharisees and the disciples. So we've seen another sign, right? Jesus has miraculously fed thousands of people. And then right away there in verse 11, the Pharisees show up once again. They, they come after Jesus, right? This is, the, this is what they do. They've done this a number of times. They, they're constantly on the attack. They're, they're constantly on the offense. They are wanting to deceit, to trap, to, to capture him in some way. So they come to him and they demand some sort of sign from heaven to, to prove who he is. Right? And look at verse 12. Jesus, he's, he's just had enough. He, he's done with the Pharisees. It says, he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why is Jesus so frustrated? Right? Why does he refuse to give them a sign? If you ever wonder this, like, Jesus, just, you know, show them, you know, just give them another one. This is what we say. Well, oh, if Jesus just showed up and did a miracle, then, then I would believe. So why doesn't Jesus just give them a sign? Because he has already given them countless proofs and signs and evidences that he is who he says he is. The, the Messiah and the Son of of God. He has been very patient up to this point with the Pharisees. He has taught them. He has discussed with them. He has given them signs many times. He, we've seen him teach with an authority that no one had ever seen before. He made the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. He raised the dead. He stilled the storm. He walked on water. He cast out demons. He's now twice miraculously fed thousands of people. And that's just in the first half of the book. And those witnessing these things, everyone else had marveled, right? Mark 2.12 says they were all amazed, and they glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Last week, we saw in Mark 7.37 that people declared, he has done all things well. So the Pharisees had heard 
more than enough of Jesus' teaching. They had seen more than enough of his signs to believe, but they stubbornly refused. Right? Their problem was not a lack of evidence. Right? They had seen countless signs. It is not the signs that are the problem. It is refusing to be content with what God has already given. It is demanding from God more signs than he has already given us. It's seeing all of the evidence. And remember, they were unable to deny it. They knew what he had done. They couldn't deny that. But they refused still to believe in him because they didn't want to believe. And that's the problem with the Pharisees. And as we saw a few weeks ago, the problem of the Pharisees is our problem as well. Jesus says, a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus says the problem is our hearts, right? Which we saw in Scripture just refers to us. It refers to who we are, our, our core, our being, our identity, thoughts, feeling, choosing. Heart refers to all of that. Jesus says, that's the problem. He says, you're the problem. The, the Bible describes our hearts as wicked, deceitful, evil, and dead. Right? The point of what we looked at these last number of weeks is that you're not a pretty good person. That's it. That's what the Bible says. And this is where Christianity gets so offensive. But I think at the same time, it shows itself here that it is the only philosophy and it is the only religion that is honest and accurate. Because we're not all generally good people. We're just not. Right? Just be honest with yourself. Look at the world around us. There is so much wickedness and evil out there. And that cannot be denied. It is only the, the Christian understanding of sin and the state of our hearts that can account for and explain all the evil out there and all the evil in here as well. Right, so it's the, it's the Christian doctrine of, of total depravity and, and Christianity's understanding of sin that is one of the best evidences of the truthfulness of the faith. Because no one else can account for all of the evil things that go on in the world, right? Buddhism says it's just, it's just an illusion, right? It's not actually evil. It's not actually really suffering. <laughs> Tell that to someone in the middle of it, right? Um, naturalism just says, oh, it's just natural. That's just, that's just how life is. That's how it's supposed to be, right? That's just the least comforting thing in the world. It is only Christianity that can account for the evil and suffering in the world, right? So, so the Pharisees, their problem is not a lack of evidence, their problem was that they had sinful hearts and that they had no desire to believe because of those hearts. And that's the problem with some of you here this morning. Because I mean, honestly, what else can God do? Right? How much more do you need? If you've been coming here these last six months, this is now the 23rd time that I've basically stood up here and given you 45 minutes of evidences and proofs that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he would do. Jesus has given you more than enough evidence. And as I've said before, Jesus never asks us to just blindly believe in something with no evidence or reason why. Acts 1.3 says, To them, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Right? He didn't come back from the dead and like believe in me and then like sneak off, kind of like figure it out, guys. No. For 40 days, he shows himself to them over and over and over again. He says, touch me. Put your hand in my side. Feel the wounds. I am back. Right? He gives them evidences and proofs. John 20, 31 talks about all of just like countless things that Jesus Christ did in his life. Too many to be recorded. But then he says, but these are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John says, I'm writing these things. I'm giving you signs and evidences and proofs so that you can believe in Jesus. Later in Jerusalem, the Jews, um, they come to Jesus. They ask him to tell them plainly if he is the Messiah. And Jesus says in John 10, 25, I already told you. I told you and you did not believe. But he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Right? Jesus wants to give us proofs and evidences and reasons to believe, and he has. Your problem is not a lack of evidence. Deep down, you know that all of this stuff is true. Right? You just simply lack the desire. Because the evidence is there, but you don't want to take the risk of believing. You don't want to take the step of trusting in it. Because you know that believing in this and trusting in this means giving something up. Right? The problem is not the evidence. The problem is that Jesus offends us. Is that he makes us uncomfortable like he did the Pharisees. Because Jesus shows up and he says to us that we are sinners. He says that, that we're not good people and that we are helpless to save ourselves. And that he demands us to, to follow him and to obey him in response. And we don't want to. Because maybe you're, maybe you're still holding on to something that you cherish more than him. Something that you are not willing to give up for Jesus Christ. What is that thing that you're holding on to that is more valuable to you than him? Is it worth it? By the way, just, just be sure, right? Because you better enjoy it for the next however many years you have with it. Right? Because Jesus says, you can't hold on to it and me. He says, it's, it's me. He says, I'm it. Right? He says, here's the sign, believe the sign. If you're here this morning, and, and you are following Christ, then, then there's a warning for you here as well. Right? Here's a warning, I think, in this passage that we can apply to Christians as well. Quit obsessing over and seeking after all of these weird signs and miracles that all these Christians in, in different kind of charismatic churches are so obsessed with. Right, I think Jesus' words here are applicable to many of our, our charismatic friends today. And listen, many of them are believers. Many of them are good, solid people that I think have, have just gotten gone wrong in this one area. Right? Quit seeking after more and more signs and miracles. Quit demanding more than God has already given us. Because quite honestly, I, I've been in a couple of these churches and I, it just makes me uncomfortable. A pastor stands up in front of hundreds of people in a church and declares that God is going to heal a woman with terminal cancer. Be careful, buddy. Be careful about what you're saying. Because I saw this happen in a church about two years ago, and the woman died two weeks later. So either, in the sight of the people that are listening to this, either God is powerless, or God is a liar, or this pastor is a fool. Right? Because in either case, this man put words into the mouth of God and declared what God was going to do because God told him God was going to do it. And then the woman died. How do you think that people took that? Right? Not very well. That was a rough stretch in this church. Right? Quit seeking after the things that God never promises. Right? God does not promise us miraculous healings or ongoing prophecies or whatever that weird babbling in some kind of nonsensical made-up language is. Right? Quit being dissatisfied with what it is that God has already given us. Right? We, listen, Christians just want to and seek after and desire miracles. Right? You want a miracle? Take out the pew Bible in front of you. 
right? That is a miracle. God's word is a miracle. Two million words, 40 different authors, three continents, three languages, written over a period of 1,500 years that God has miraculously preserved for the last 2,000 years. The most important and significant book in all of history. The, the runaway, all-time bestseller. A book that has been ripped apart and attacked and dissected by critics for thousands of years. Yet it still remains today just as strong and influential as ever. No other book still continues to so change the lives of millions of people. And no other book has so affected the entire course of human history. Right? Do you want a miracle? That book that you're holding is a miracle. Right? Why don't we start treating it like that? So, so the, the, some people's obsession with, with and their continued pursuit of wonders and, and new words and revelations from God, it, just, it simply shows that the Bible is not good enough for them. Right? It shows that the Bible is not sufficient, that, that they need something more. They de-emphasize God's word and they emphasize personal experience, which is directly contradictory to what God's word itself says. Romans 1.16 says it is the gospel that is the power of salvation. Romans 10 says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says scripture is enough. It is all that we need to teach us and to train us and to equip us for everything. So the Pharisees here, they looked at the mountains of evidence and signs that Jesus had given them. And they said, Jesus, not enough to give us more. And many of our charismatic friends and many other Christians today, they look at the, the miraculous deposit of God's revelation in the Bible and they say, not enough, God. Give me something more. But look at Jesus' response in verse 13 to that. Right? This, this particular confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees is significant because this is the last one that's going to happen in Galilee. Right? Jesus is frustrated. He, he's, he's done with the Pharisees. What else can he do? Well, we've, he's, they've seen all of the signs. They've seen all the evidence that he's given them, but they still refuse to believe. So what does he do? He, he turns his back on them. He leaves them. He climbs into the boat and goes away. And this should serve as a warning for us. The Bible talks over and over again about God being patient and, and long-suffering. That is so biblical and true. Exodus 34.4 says that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient toward us. Romans 2.4 talks about the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. But then Paul says that all these attributes, the patience and all these things about God, are meant to lead you to repentance. Right? He continues in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Yes, God is a very patient God. He is far more patient than any of us deserve. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that God will be eternally patient. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised that He will forever be patient with us. In fact, it says the exact opposite. His kindness and His patience are meant to lead us to repentance. And when they do not, as, as with the Pharisees, then there eventually comes a time, as we see here with Jesus, when He turns His back, He climbs into the boat, and He simply leaves us to ourselves. Do not presume on the patience 
of God. Do not operate under the false assumption that you can keep holding him at arm's length and keep putting him off until um, later. You'll, you'll get around to it sometime in the future. Once you're done having your fun, once you're older, once you're done sleeping around, oh, once I have kids, then I'll, then I'll start going to church again. Kind of once I get this job or this, whatever it is, whatever you're holding him off at arm's length for, be careful. Right? God will not be patient forever. So in verse 14, Jesus turns his back. He gives up on the Pharisees, but he graciously has not given up on the disciples yet, though they, though they probably deserve it. Look at, this, look at that next, the last section there. The, the 12, they're back in the boat, and they're sailing across to the other side of the lake. They're making this long trip, and they realize, uh-oh, we've only got one loaf of bread. We've only got one sandwich. Whoa, what are we going to do? How in the world can we feed 13 people with one loaf of bread? Come on, guys, right? Good grief, right? They're in the middle of arguing about these sandwiches. They're having this conversation over here. Jesus is having a whole other conversation over here in verse 15. He says, watch out, guys. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Right? Jesus is still clearly talking about his, his previous exchange with the Pharisees. But the disciples, they're so oblivious. They don't. Get it. So they go back in, first, in verse 16. They're like, oh, well, it must be talking about bread. And so there's like an argument. They're like, well, Andrew was supposed to bring the bread. No, 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 Peter was supposed to bring the bread. Which, who brought the bread? What are we going to do? How are we going to eat? Right? But there, he's obviously not talking about that, right? He's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. What is leaven? Leaven is, is yeast. Right? Yeast, yeast, leaven, basically the same thing. And leaven is what you put into bread to make bread rise. And so you have a lot of bread, and all it takes, you have a lot of dough, and all it takes is this tiny little bit of leaven, right? And the leaven doesn't just affect that one part of the bread, it spreads through the whole bread, and it influences and, and changes and affects all of it, right? That's the point. Leaven spreads through quickly and affects everything. You put a little bit in, it influences all of it. So, so Jesus warns them about this influence of the Pharisees. In this same story in Matthew, Jesus says that the leaven of the Pharisees is their, their teaching, in this same passage in Luke, he says that their leaven is their hypocrisy. Right? It's all of these things, which, which basically boils down to their unbelief. So Jesus is saying to the disciples in the boat, while they're arguing about sandwiches, he's saying, don't be like the Pharisees. And remember, always read these stories in context. Right? He, he's saying this in context of the discussion we've just had about the signs. He's saying, don't do what the Pharisees do. Don't see the signs and ignore them. He's basically saying, beware of unbelief. But again, the disciples are just so slow. They still think he's talking about dinner. And Jesus here gets pretty intense with the disciples. This is one of the spots where I think he gets, he gets the most serious and focused and intense with them. He asked them a bunch of, I think it's like seven different rhetorical questions. He says, why are you talking about bread? Do you not yet perceive? Are your hearts hardened? Do you not see or hear? Do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? It says, you've seen the signs. Do you not get it? Do you not realize who I am? You're sitting here arguing about one loaf of bread, how it's not going to be enough, um, when you have just watched me twice feed thousands of people with little more. Do you not understand who I am? Are you paying attention at all? You've seen the signs. 
Pay attention to them. Read them. Analyze them. Understand them. Focus not on the signs, but the one the signs point to. Jesus says, look at me. Because the very point of a sign is to point to that which it signifies. Right? Maybe one of the, I'm a child of the 90s. Right? Maybe one of the, the biggest songs of my childhood was by a Swedish band that kind of took over the pop world in 93 called Ace of Base. Anyone Ace of Base? No? Right, yeah. Ace of Base, right? The, the song, a huge song, took over the world, was called The Sign. And I just loved it. It was one of the first singles I bought. Uh, I was seven or something. And sung the song over and over again. And it's, the song is about this girl realizing that the relationship she's in, that the guy she's with was just terrible. Right? So she realizes that, and she ends the relationship. Right? The chorus, we're not going to sing it, but the chorus goes, I saw the sign, and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. And then I love the next line. Line. Life is demanding without understanding. Right? Listen to that. That is theology in terrible 90s Swedish pop. Right? Life is demanding. It doesn't make any sense without understanding. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This woman in the song, she sees the sign. She realizes that her boyfriend is terrible. Right? That doesn't stop there. That would be pointless. Right? She sees the sign and she acts in response to the sign. Right? She does something about it. She, she breaks up with it. So she sees a sign, and then she acts in response to that sign. That's the point of signs. We don't have stop signs just because we like red octagons on the corner. Right? By the way, I need you guys to settle a serious marital dispute for me. Um, the, the flashing crosswalk hand, right, when you're on the street, the flashing crosswalk hand, what color is that hand? Red. Oh, see, all right, we've got, a, we've got conflict. Isn't it obviously red? It's red. No, it's red. I'm going with Alex. I think Alex is right. I think Alex is got it. All right, well, this, is, this has become a serious dispute. Right, red means stop. So isn't it obvious that it's red? It's red. We'll, we'll continue this discussion later. All right, sorry. Melissa is just berating me about it. Uh, she says that I'm colorblind. All right, after the service, do not Google it now. Don't go do it. We'll Google it after the service. But again, I digress. The point is that flashing hand is sitting there telling you something. It's not just pretty or cool. It's saying, hey, by the way, don't walk across the street or you might die. That's, that's, that's what it's telling us an important message. Right? It's not about the sign. It's about what the sign conveys, right? So, and think about it, that hand, like if you start walking across the street, it doesn't like reach out and grab you and pull you back, right? It's your job to see the sign, to interpret the sign, and then to act in response to that sign. That's what signs are for. And this takes us back to the Pharisees. They'd all seen the signs. They had plenty of evidence, but they, they refused to properly interpret those signs and then act upon them. A sign demands understanding, and it demands an informed response. And the Pharisees were not doing that, and sadly the disciples weren't yet doing it either. So Jesus is here teaching them important spiritual truths, um, and he's, telling, he's talking to them about eternity, basically, and they're still arguing about over who's going to get this part of the sandwich or what they're going to do for food, right? But we're just like them, right? We're, we're sitting here this morning with the very words of God open on our lap, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed, life-saving and altering truths, and we're focused on lunch, 
Or we're, we're focused on the football game. Can the Giants beat the Cowboys tonight and really get in the playoff hunt? Right? My focus is can the Panthers get another win tonight and cement their spot in the playoffs? Right? We're, we're thinking about work or that girl or that boy or, or what we're going to do or get for Christmas. All of these other random things that we get distracted with. Or maybe you're distracted by good things, more important things, right? How am I going to pay this next bill, right? I need a job. My, my loved ones are sick. How are people doing over in the Philippines, right? All important, good things to be focused on or to be thinking about in their right place. But the point I'm trying to make is that we obsess and we worry and we get anxious over a loaf of bread. When the very bread of life, with the words of life, is calling out after us. We get so caught up in useless and vain things that we just completely miss the really important stuff. And Jesus tries to shake us out of it. We have passages like this where he screams, do you not yet understand? Do you not get who I am and how important that is? Because we're talking about eternity here and he says, I am the dividing line. I'm it. Look at the countless signs he has given you, right? These signs demand that you do something. They aren't just abstract truths to be believed. They, they point to a person to be followed. These signs and the, and the person of Jesus Christ demand some sort of response from us. But what most people do with Jesus is the only response that is not acceptable, because most people's response to Jesus, any, even many people who claim to be Christian, many people who, who come to church regularly, their response to Jesus basically is just it's apathy. It's indifference. It's basically Jesus, yeah, but eh, right? What's, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Seemed like a nice guy, taught some nice things. Um, many, many people come to church and say, yeah, Jesus, I believe in him, but it has no impact on their lives. They see the signs, like, yeah, okay, yeah, there's a sign there, but they don't act in response to the signs. But Jesus demands that we respond. Listen, either love him or hate him. Right? He didn't leave any middle ground option. Either he is God, like he claims, and he is your only hope of salvation, like he claims. And if, listen, if that's the case, you better fall down at his feet in repentance and faith and submit yourself to him. But if he's not, if you don't believe that he is God and that he is salvation, then what in the world are you doing wasting your time with this stuff, right? It, listen, if he's not those things, if he's not God, if he's not salvation, then you should want nothing to do with him because he was a joke. He was either a liar or he was a crazy person. Either love him or hate him. Follow him or reject him, right? Don't waste your time with kind of the middle of the road, fence riding foolishness. Because at this point in the story, that's what the disciples are still doing. All right? They're not committed yet. Right? We're, 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 it's going to take some time for them to really figure it out. They're still riding the fence and trying to figure this out. They're seeing the signs, but they're not getting it. They're not acting on what they're seeing. And Jesus is very intense with them here. His tone is urgent. And that's the tone that I want to convey this morning. A tone of a sermon should match the tone of the text. Right? It's, it's an urgent tone. Jesus comes to them and says, do you not understand? Because if you did, your life would be fundamentally different. Right? You would act 
differently. You would want to do everything that you could to serve and follow this Jesus if you really believed that he was the creator, savior, and sustainer of this universe. Everything else would pale in comparison to your desire to be with him. Is that the case? Because I think the, the absolutely tragic part of this passage is that the Pharisees are standing there before Jesus and they're demanding a sign from heaven without realizing that the sign from heaven was standing right in front of them. Right? Jesus Christ himself was the sign from heaven. Matthew, in his account of the story, gives us a little bit more detail of the exchange um, between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus says, no sign will be given. But then Matthew 16, 4 gives us a little bit more. It says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Well, what in the world is the sign of Jonah? Right? Jesus tells us himself earlier in Matthew 12, 40. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says that, that Jonah's miraculous time in the fish is a shadow. It is a sign. It is a pointer that points forward to Jesus' time in the tomb. And just as Jonah would three days later come up out of the fish, three days later Jesus Christ would come up out of the tomb. It's the resurrection. Right? The sign of Jonah, the only sign that Jesus is going to give them is the resurrection. On Wednesday night, if you, if you were here, we started working through the book of James. Right? It's written by Jesus' half-brother, James. And if you remember back on chapter 3 of Mark, you remember Jesus is just getting started. Things are just getting kind of popular. And what happens? His family comes to him. They try to take him and seize him and pull him away because they all think he's crazy. Right? James is part of that group. Right? James, Jesus' own half-brother, originally did not believe in Jesus, didn't understand, and thought that he was crazy. But... Then in the first verse of James, James 1, 1, James calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, the, Jesus the Messiah. Many of your translations may say servant, but the word is doulos. The word is slave. So what in the world happened to take James from disbelief, thinking his brother was crazy, to calling himself a slave of his brother, who was the Messiah and the Son of God? What happened to make this radical switch? The resurrection happened, right? The sign of Jonah. He witnessed the sign and he could no longer disbelieve. The sign was too clear. He finally got it and he believed, becoming the head of the church in Jerusalem. And then a few years later, he would give his life. He would be, he would be stabbed by the king and killed for his faith in his half-brother. It all comes down to the resurrection, the sign of Jonah. If, if this Jesus claimed to be God and predicted that he was going to be crucified and that he would come back from the dead three days later, and then he actually did it, then that changes everything, right? If he didn't, then we're all fools and this whole Christianity thing is the worst of jokes and I've wasted my entire life, right? It all comes down to the resurrection. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if it, doesn't happen, if it didn't happen, we're all done and we're all stuck in our sins. But if it did happen, it changes everything. The resurrection is the sign. Do you believe that it happened? If so, it should fundamentally alter everything about your life. Are you not sure that it happened? Let me give you a few quick reasons why you should be. 
When it comes to the historical person of Jesus Christ, there are a number of facts that every scholar agrees on. Right? Christian, non-Christian, believer, skeptic, they all pretty much agree on these six basic facts. Jesus existed. Right? He was a historical man who lived in Israel around 2,000 years ago. Number two, this Jesus died on a cross around the year 33 AD. Right? No one, no real historian denies that. Number three, that Jesus, after he died, was laid in a well-known and a well-marked tomb. Number four, three days later, for whatever reason, that tomb was all of a sudden empty. Number five, that after the empty tomb, Jesus' followers wandered around claiming that they had seen Jesus a number of times and that he had risen from the dead. And then finally, number six, the, the church in the next few years absolutely exploded throughout the known world on the backs of Jesus' closest friends preaching the resurrection. Right? Those six facts are not disputed by anyone. But there's a couple, you can find a website of crazy people. But it, real historians and scholars all agree on those basic things. The question is then, what best explains those six facts? Right? And only the actual physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead does. Now, I'm, I'm running over on time, so I can't get into all the specifics of why um, all the other explanations fall short and why only the resurrection makes sense. Please come find me afterwards if you want to talk about it. I would love to. But let me give you one quick example with what we've been talking about. Just, just take the disciples, for instance. We, we've talked about them a lot. We, haven't, we shouldn't be very impressed by them so far up to this point in the story. They're not very bright. They don't get it. They struggle to understand and believe. And at the end, even when they're starting to get it, right, what happens? Jesus gets arrested. They all bail. <laughs> they're out. All right, this, I don't understand this at all. This is terrible. What's going on? They all just completely abandon Jesus Christ. They don't get it. And they're cowards. And they run and hide. But then, all of a sudden, a few weeks later, these 12 men start to set the world on fire. Right? Something flips. They go seemingly overnight from terrified cowards to fearless martyrs. These men are beaten and burned and impaled and boiled and crucified happily for their message. And what was that message? It was the sign of Jonah. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only the resurrection properly explains the change in these 12 men. And that means that Jesus is alive. Right? Muhammad, dead. Buddha, dead. Joseph Smith, dead. Abraham, dead. Every other single religion, religious leader that you can come up with, they're all dead. Right? I'm going to go with the guy who's alive. Right? You've got to do something with the resurrection. If it's true, it changes everything. Have you understood the sign? Do you see it? Has it changed you? Don't ignore this because it has eternal Implications, Because the gospel says that none of us are good. It says that we're all far more wicked than we ever thought. And we're all separated from God. And all of us in some way are trying to save ourselves. We're all trying to give our lives meaning. Trying to, to find fulfillment or some sort of identity. Through all these various things. Through work and sex and family and money. All these other things we try to do these things with. And Jesus says it won't work. Though our, our rejection of God deserves punishment... A, a just God must punish sin or he would not be just. Jesus comes to take our place and take that punishment for us. Right? The gospel is that we deserve to die, but he dies for us. 
We deserve hell, but he submits himself to hell in our place. He takes what we deserve and gives us what he deserves. He gets our death. We get his life. And it's the great exchange. That's, that's the gospel. It's about substitution. It's about Jesus, God himself, coming down, taking on flesh, submitting himself to all of the evil and suffering of this world for you and for me and for sinners. He takes our place. And that is the greatest news in the world. It is the only thing that can save us. It is the only thing that can satisfy us and fulfill us and give our lives true, lasting meaning. We will only find it in Jesus Christ. So, we've seen yet another sign this morning. And all of these signs are simply serving to move the story along to the ultimate sign. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which, which confirms that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he said he would do. Do you not yet understand? If you did, it should change everything. Right? Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you just don't leave us to ourselves to, to figure things out or to try to struggle and work and, and fail over and over again. Father, we thank you for giving us your miraculous word, giving us these, these signs and proofs and evidences that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Son of God, that he is God himself come in the flesh to, to save sinners. So Father, we thank you um, for that. We thank you for your word. Father, I pray that we would be satisfied with the signs that you have given us, that we would cherish your word and, and read it and know it and understand it and then live it, Father. I pray that we would seek you only there. And I just pray that you would be working in our hearts, that you would show us um, that we are sinners, Father, and that we are in great need of you. Father, we ask that you would save sinners um, in this place. And we ask that you would sanctify already saved sinners, Father, that you would um, grant us faith and repentance, that you would make us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive me um, for how apathetic I can be about the gospel at times. Forgive me for how lightly I can treat um, these things, concerned about bread and, and sandwiches and, and lunch um, and instead of these eternal truths. Father, drive these home into our hearts. Um, make, us, make us care. Make us understand and value what you have done for us in Jesus. Father, we thank you um, for your word, and we thank you for this church and, and what you're doing in this place. I pray that you would get all the glory. pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.